Download the BetMGM Sports app and place a $10 Moneyline wager on any NBA playoff game to win $200 in free bets if either team hits a three-pointer. Use code CHAMPION200. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-888-532-3500. Is your savings just sitting there? Well, put it to work. A premium online savings account from PenFed earns way more than the national average, so you can get your savings working on earning you a vacation or a new kitchen or that fancy exercise mirror. Apply at PenFed.org savings. Premium online savings account holders must agree to electronic delivery of account opening disclosures and monthly statements. $5 minimum required to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. All right, 86 Boxing Podcast, baby. Episode 14, September 7, 2020. I am back. It's been almost a year to the day, probably a little bit over since I last did a podcast episode. Secretly, I did an episode 13 last week, but it'll forever live in infamy because of the fact that there there was something with the files that ended up getting corrupted. I had my guy slaving from Boxing Haven over... We were talking boxing, a lot of the great things that are going on, all that good stuff. But the buck doesn't stop there. We're going to keep things going. Anyway, I'm back. 86 Boxing Podcast, Joshua City. You know it's 86boxing.com. Be sure to hit that up. Got articles out there. Try to keep it up with the press updates, all that good stuff. I know some of you are wondering, like, where have I been? Well, I'm in D.C., of course. You know D.C. We're a good little boxing area. We have a lot of things going on. D.C., Maryland, Virginia, all thrown in the mix. I was in the process of moving. I am in the city, you know, so I had to do what I had to do. I initially thought it would take about three months. So I put the podcast on hiatus just for those three months. But it ended up taking a long time. You know, that market moves quickly in D.C. in some regards. But pandemic came in, all that good stuff. But lo and behold, I'm back. I'm here. Just wanted to talk a little bit of boxing, you know, keep it real with you all. I'm going to be back for good now, just trying to keep this thing going, see where it goes from you know, from the start. So I just want to jump straight into some stuff. I'm going to be having guests and all that moving forward on the podcast, so you can expect that. You can expect a lot of different boxers, those who run different sites, as well as forums, people from Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you name it. People of all different genres of things, not just boxing, trying to expand upon this thing. Because in reality, with life, we just have a whole bunch of stuff going on. So it's just not boxing. And boxing touches so many things. We're talking from all areas, hip-hop. We're talking just the daily life, things that are going on in and around your areas. It's global I mean, it's the biggest sport in the world, the greatest sport in the world. It lets us down at times, but it is what it is. If you're part of the boxing family, then follow along and you know how it goes. I just want to jump straight into a couple of fights that took place over this past weekend, which was Jamel Herring taking on Jonathan Okendo. This was for the WBA Super Featherweight title. And if you've seen the fight, then you know that it was very controversial towards the ending. This was a fight where Herring, he had a tough time dealing with Okendo's style, which was basically barrel in, forward, head first, 
generally. And it led to a lot of head clashes, head scrapes, a lot of digging and dirtiness on the inside. Herring was able to take advantage at times. He was able to drop Okendo with an uppercut. I think it was a left uppercut. Get which round? I want to say around the third round. And it showed that he he has a few wrinkles to his game. He 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 could do things that he needed to do to get him up off of there. But it was a matter of whether he would be able to sustain this, because Okendo kept coming in. In the fifth round, they had a head clash that was critical because it opened up a cut on Herring. It was very bloody, but he wanted to continue on. He could see, or he at least told the doctor he could see, and they kept going doing their thing. So we get to the eighth round, right? And what happened is Okendo was really coming on. He was staying dead, staying in on the inside. He ended up roughing up Herring a bit. You know, his head was still scraping and he was clawing, digging in. And ultimately, Herring went back to his corner. He said he couldn't see. And there was some confusion and all that. But ultimately, it ended up being the fight was stopped. Herring wanted to kind of go back in because of the confusion around the scoring. But he had told the doctor he couldn't see. So the doctor rightfully was like, no, he told me he couldn't see. So I'm not going to let this happen. So... Tony Weeks was a referee. Of course, he's a veteran referee. Bob Bennett was there ringside as well. This was in Las Vegas in the bubble there for top rank. There was confusion around what the actual call or ending of the fight would be, whether it would go to the scorecards or whether it would be stopped and it would just be a disqualification. It ultimately became a disqualification after some back and forth and some confusion. We were all left in suspense. And it is pretty tough. If you know boxing, you know the rule books are pretty vast in some regards and then you have to think about state to state things change and are different i do things on the amateur level so we have a different set of rules and those on the pros but it probably wasn't a very good look the fact that they were confused and didn't really know what was going on it ended up being a dq eighth round due to the fact that the cut was he ruled a hit but by tony weeks when it initially took place in the fifth round now, for me, I didn't think that it was a – I didn't think it was an intentional headbutt. I mean, it's subjective. Overall, Tony Weeks is the referee who was inside. He's a veteran referee, so he knows what's going on. But I'm getting a call, of course, right here in the midst of the episode. Anyway, let me get back to that. But anyway, Tony Tony Weeks, he, he is a veteran ref. He knows what he's doing. So he ended up – ruling it an intentional headbutt, and it came back to the dismay of many of the viewers and Jonathan Okendo as a disqualification due to the fact that Herring said he couldn't see. Now, many people were getting at Herring. Herring, he's been on social media defending himself or just kind of taking it in. He's speaking of retirement. You had people on both sides saying, hey, you can see you've got to dig that out. you got to continue going. Ultimately, he was the person in the ring. He chose to do things as he chose. So we'll see what the fallout is as things continue to move forward. Maybe his next fight is his final fight, and that is presumed to be Carl Frampton. I like Frampton in that fight, I must say. So we'll see. That's the best thing can We'll see. Controversy. But boxing is full of controversy at all times. Yesterday, which was Sunday, Jordanius uh, or Ugas, he took on Abel Ramon, or Abel Ramos, pardon. 
Ugas won the vacant WBA welterweight title. It was via split decision. Two judges had it 115-113 in favor of Ugas, while veteran judge Lou Moret had it 117-111 for Ramos, which was not right. Ugas pretty much controlled the entire fight. Ugas, if you don't know Ugas, he is a very technical, skilled fighter. He's a Cuban fighter, and generally the Cuban fighters are always on point. One thing you can say about them is they are very skilled, fundamentally. And they'll oftentimes be the most fundamental and better skilled fighter in the ring, regardless of who they're facing. And this is the same with Ugas. He's a patient fighter. He's one of the top welterweights out of there. He's finally really getting his due, his just due. Uh, he had some periods in which I guess he was kind of thinking about not even continuing the fighting. So he's been back. He's been in with a lot of good guys. He had a split decision with Sean Porter in what was a very good fight. Both of them gritted it out. And in this fight with Abel Ramos, he pretty much controlled everything from the jump. And I don't know what Lou Moret was thinking, but judging is subjective. And there was a lot of back and forth, a lot of articles, a lot of social media postings about judging and how the, how the officiating and judging in itself affects fighters, their careers. And really, it comes down to careers, you know, because these are really decisions and scores that ultimately determine where they go trajectory wise, because the wrong score can put someone in that losing bracket and they can miss out on a big payday. They can miss out on a title shot opportunity. In this case, Lou Moret, he must have saw something differently and you're at different angles in the ring. I can speak from my own perspective that judging definitely needs to improve. I'm going to write an article for 86boxing.com. I'm going to speak on this from my perspective as an amateur official, which is in a sense a farm system that pushes towards what ultimately is pro officials doing their things. But that's where it starts. I'm going to write this article. And I want you all to check it out, especially those who complain about officiating and want to see changes in there. This article is going to be of benefit to you because really you're looking at situations where the controversy and I'm not making this sort of like an age thing. But oftentimes you're going to have your grandfather or your grandmother in there scoring these fights. You have to make a change to that. You'll see this in my article. I'm going to move on from that. But Ugas did a good thing. or He, he did his thing. He was, he was uh, looking excellent in the fight. Very patient, as I mentioned. He's not going to always give you that glitz and glam, but just fundamentally, you're going to see that he, he's a level above many that he ultimately faces. And he did what he had to do. I would sure love to see Ugas against Terrence Crawford. I wonder how Crawford would look with him or if he's able to look good against the likes of an Ugas, who is a very patient fighter, who sometimes comes in, he waits for the counter. But that being said, we have seen him at time when he's charged up, kind of take the lead, which makes it interesting as well. We'll see where he goes from here because Crawford is kind of right now in limbo in some sense as far as the top guys at 147. There is talk of him facing Kell Brook, which – if this was 2017, I might be very excited, but this is 2020. And that's no disrespect to Brooke because he is a very good fighter. And he was at the top of this game at one point, especially around that 2017 time frame, 2016, 2017. But he wasn't the same after stepping in with Triple G as well as the succeeding fight against Errol Spence. He had two orbital orbital bones broken during that fight say that twice in concession but uh 
yeah, he was just never the same after that. And he's done a good job of coming back. He's fighting at 154. So this would be his first time fighting at 147 since 2017. I don't know if the weight would be a huge challenge for him. Uh, we'll see, though. But hopefully we can get something a little bit better for Crawford. But as of right now, with the whole PBC and them being kind of doing their own thing, you can even notice it in the broadcast. They only list the top 10 PBC welterweights, which I find very disrespectful. How are you going to just only limit it to the PBC fighters? You have the right to do so. But we all know that Terrence Crawford is out there. He's looming. I mean, we don't want to just see a top 10 PBC welterweights. They're acting like they don't want to include him in the mix. And, you know, we'll see. I don't know if that Spence Crawford fight would ever happen. I did see something recently where Errol Spence is talking he thinks he deserves more than 50-50 for a fight with Crawford because I guess he says he sells more. You know, we'll see. Um, I don't I don't like that either. I think that it is a 50-50 fight. Both of them bring something to the table, but I'm not a promoter. They ultimately work with who they work with. I'm going to move on to something else, though. So I read this book. It really was more so me listening to the book. It was an audio book. Christopher Klein, he wrote the book Strong Boy, The Life and Times of America's First Sports Superstar, which is John L. Sullivan. This goes all the way back to the 1800s. I don't know if I've really gotten into this in the past, but I am a fan of the older days, some of the earlier boxing. I like to look back on the history, just kind of get an understanding of what fighters went through at those in those particular times. I think it's very hard when you're talking of doing mythical matchups and who would do this or who would do what to a particular fighter based on just the time. It's very difficult. You had fighters going 45 rounds in the early 1900s. You had fighters going beyond that in the 1800s when we were in the bare knuckle areas, uh, era. It's just so hard to say that X fighter would do better than the other fighter, we were talking these mythical matchups because you have to take into account the elements that would be presented at those particular times. You can drop, if you drop Deontay Wilder into 1905, then he's going to have to deal with the elements that are associated with 1905, just as if you put Jack Johnson in 2020, he's going to have to deal with 2020, but I think he would be very successful in doing so. And just based on Wilder's resume, for instance, you would see that it wouldn't be, or he would probably have a lot more losses if it was 1905 because he'd be dealing with a lot more competition at heavyweight. And in the trajectory of him even getting to where he was able to get to before facing stiff, stiffer competition, would have come into play. So elements affect and change things. Jack Johnson, he can fight in pretty much any era. He's one of the greatest defensive fighters ever. But anyway, this is about John L. Sullivan. I thought that the author, Christopher Klein, did an excellent job of, of just presenting his story. You get to know John L. Sullivan not as just the boxer, but as the man, the man himself. And knowing that, reading this book, yeah, I do kind of have an understanding now a little bit more at least, of what type of man he was. Early on, he was not a good guy, probably for the majority of his career. He was not 
a good guy, not a guy you would want to sort of be around or hang with outside of just getting that fame that comes along with him being one of the most highly regarded boxers at that particular time in a time where, you know, there really weren't superstars. Uh, He had a lot of issues with alcohol and that led him into many situations that were negative overall throughout his career. And Christopher Klein highlights that in the book. You'll get to see that Sullivan probably could have been a bit better if if you want to say that he proved that he was the greatest fighter at that particular time. He probably could have went beyond that, been even better if he weren't dealing with the demons associated with his alcoholism. He had issues with females, in particular his wife, uh, and a lot of that was attributed to his alcoholism. He had some racist tendencies. If you look at his record and all that he did, none of that was against any black fighters. So he's held in right high regards. And he was, in fact, a superstar of that particular time. But we can't really say that he was the best, in my opinion, when he didn't take on all of the better fighters that were out there. He only took on the white fighters. So you had people like George Godfrey, black fighters, that is, uh, Peter Jackson, guys like that who were on the outside looking in because he refused or he drew the color line and definitely once he picked up the title, refused to give anyone of color a shot at the title. And you could see in press clippings or at least what he put out there to the press that was quoted, and this is detailed in the book, he had a lot of uh, racial quotes that he viewed fighters of color as being inferior and, you know, it is what it is. It, it, that was the sort of John L. Sullivan of the time. He was able to garner some form of respect from Jack Johnson back when Johnson was taking on Jim Jeffries for the heavyweight title or when he was defending his title against Jim Jeffrey, Jeffries. And that was because Johnson showed him respect. But overall, Sullivan, he, he was a great fighter for his time. But there are always there'll always be an asterisk for me when you look at his name. So he won the bare knuckle title in eighteen eighty two under the London Prize fight rules. He won it in the ninth round against Patty Ryan. This was one of his rivals during that particular time. I think he fought him three times. London Prize fighting rules was basically the bare knuckle rules. So you could clinch claw, punch, gouge, it was basically sanctioned chaos in a sense and it would take place anywhere they typically weren't in rings you could be on a barge you could be in just the grass dirt and they throw up some ropes and this is how things started out and if you go further and further back even prior to him being born he was born in 1858 you had guys like uh tom crib i think of england he was like regarded as one of the best bare knuckle fighters of his day uh, late 1700s or early 1800s, something like that. Tom Malinu, who's a black fighter who ended up going over to uh, the UK for a similar thing. Bill Richmond, another uh, black bare knuckle fighter. Um, there are people out there who know a ton about the bare knuckle era. A lot of it's been documented, which is pretty cool considering it was way, it was, it was a good deal. It was a good uh, deal of time ago, you know, talking 1700s. Uh, in 1800, early 1800s, early mid, 
So it's, it's pretty remarkable that some of these stories were able to be documented. But anyway, so Sullivan won the American bare knuckle title when he took on Patty Ryan. He had a rival in the Police Gazette, which was Richard Kyle Fox. He was the owner of the Police Gazette, which for its time was like, would be it would be the equivalent of, say, reporting from an ESPN or something like that, as far as the amount of publicity that would come about from an article coming out of the Police Gazette, similar to that of something coming from ESPN or The Atlantic. That seems to be a popular one these days. But if we're talking newspapers in general, like, say, a New York Times, Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, Wall Street Journal, etc., etc., the Police Gazette was one of the first ones to cover sports. And that led to what ultimately is these sort of sports stations that we deal with today where they're pretty much full-time covering sports. But so Tom, uh, John Sullivan, he won the title against Patty Ryan. I'm just only going to speak on some of the significant fights that he had. I would recommend getting the book in some capacity, whether that's via audio through Audible or something, or if you get the actual physical book, I have both. So he won the uh, title, the Marcus Greensbury rules titles, the heavyweight title against Dominic McCaffrey in 1885. He was able to get a knockout in that fight. I think McCaffrey was a little bit smaller, and this was the case with some of the fighters that Sullivan took on. Uh, but this still wasn't truly, from at least a police gazette standpoint, since Richard Kyle Fox uh, really was looking for, or he never really had full respect for Sullivan he would always come up with new opponents that would be representing or who the Police Gazette would recognize as the actual champion. Uh, in 1888, Sullivan took on Charlie Mitchell. It was a 39-round draw. This took place over in France, I believe. And a lot of it was Charlie Mitchell kind of staying away from Sullivan. And you've got to keep in mind that at this time, this wasn't the Sullivan of the early days of him really coming on, which was around 1882, around probably from that 1882 time frame up until, or in between 1880, 1884, 85, he was probably at his best, but um, a lot of things start to creep in on him. Uh, so about 1889, he, had, he was dealing with a ton of things outside of the ring uh, that were affecting him really and his performance as well as his weight. But it was a 39-round draw. He ended up winning the world bare-knuckle title against Jake Kilrain in a 75-round fight in Mississippi. It lasted like three-plus hours. And this was sort of him becoming the champion that we all know or being considered the very the first heavyweight champion of the world. Because after this, he chose not to fight bare knuckle and really outside of him first taking on the fight for the bare knuckle title and then the two sort of defenses or whatever it may be called he really fought the majority of this fight under the Marcus of Queensbury rules because there was a lot of negativity that came with bare knuckle fighting and it was pretty much outlawed and when you started to go Marcus of Queensbury, putting the gloves on, 
then that allowed for more things to take place. And they could list things as exhibitions, which opened the door for the most part for a lot of them to be able to take on fights and Sullivan to get to where he was. And he ultimately lost his title in 1892 against Jim Corbett, Gentleman Jim. And it was in 21 rounds, a minute 30 seconds of the 21st round, actually, is when it was listed that uh, Sullivan was knocked out. By that time, he was a shell of himself. He was about 34. And he had pretty much drank himself into oblivion. The fact that he was a- that he was able to win the title against, or officially the World Bear Deckle title against uh, Jake Kilrain in 1889, or I believe it was 1889, was because he was somehow whipped into shape by William Maldoon, who was this wrestler of that time who helped to get him together, and they had a falling out thereafter. But ultimately, yeah, Sullivan got in there with Corbett. He was able to get uh, down to the 220s or somewhere around that range, but it still wasn't the prime, I guess you could say, Sullivan who came in right around that 200, a little over 200 range when he was at his very best and he was chiseled. So it was a bigger Sullivan and probably he had a foot in and a foot outside of the game at that point. But he was ultimately knocked out by Corbett, who, as you know, was viewed as one of the early pioneers of the style that we see today. The hit and don't get hit. Sullivan was more of the charging, swinging his punches, really trying to bully you and get you out of there. Corbett, Corbett, he focused more on the defensive side of things, dodging punches and setting up things at the perfect time. And... That's a lot of what you see today, and of course, it ultimately evolved into some of the things you see today. But this was a very good book. I'm not even giving you the full tidbits of it. All I can say is Sullivan, he lived a very fast life. He was involved in so many different things, act whether it was acting Broadway or Broadway caliber or types of plays. He was instrumental in the Madison Square Garden getting to I guess the level that it is to this day, in some sense, back then, because he was hosting sort of exhibitions and boxing shows at that particular time. He, if you look on the likes of Boxrec and all that, they'll only show him as having, I think, around 40-something fights. But in all actuality, it's recorded or there's at least estimated that he fought between four and 500 times because he had what was called some type of road show where he would say, or he would offer a certain amount of funding for anyone who could last four rounds with them. And he would take this show and just go all over the country. People would be lined up and he'd sit them down. He probably had only uh, two people. I think Charlie Mitchell was one, one of the ones, but there were only a couple of people who lasted with them and they employed the, strategy of sort of just staying away from them because of course under certain rules you could kind of just go down and then a round would start over again especially under the bare knuckle rules or the london prize fight rules um so yeah he he's iconic in a sense infamous in a sense 
John L. Sullivan. There are a ton of things out there on him, YouTube. You can check that. Uh, if you just even Google him, I knew a little bit about him, but this book really shed a ton of light on him. And I respect his placement in history. But as I said, there is an asterisk there, in my opinion. I would have loved to have seen him against the Australian fighter, Peter Jackson, who Jim Corbett took on at that particular time. And they went to a draw. I think it was something in the neighborhood of 60 rounds or somewhere in there. Uh, but Sullivan, as mentioned, he only chose to fight uh, white fighters. And, hey, it worked out for him. He was able to win an estimated one million plus in purses over the course of his career. A lot of that was spent on alcohol. Uh, he ultimately died in, I believe it was 1919 or 1919 or 1918. He was at that particular time living on a farm or whatever, a ranch that he had in Massachusetts where, you know, he spent the majority of his time in Boston or earlier years and later years actually. And, yeah, you know, he has that legacy. He's known as the first world heavyweight champion. There's not any video of him. You have some pictures, or there is one video, uh, and it's basically during his time when he was meeting with Jim Jeffries. I think this was in 1908 when Jim Jeffries was coming out of retirement to take on Jack Johnson for the heavyweight title when they were looking for the great white hope. There's a video of Sullivan along with Jim Corbett, as well as Jim Jeffries standing there, you all, you also get to see Sullivan kind of posturing, acting like he's kind of getting ready to spar with uh, Corbett. Of course, this is an older Sullivan. He was in his uh, 50s at the time, I believe, or, yeah, he, somewhere in his 50s at the time. And there's also a video of him hitting a speed bag. And you can kind of see his, I guess, style in some sense when he's hitting that speed bag, but it's not much. Uh, but his sort of boxing career in its sense was well-documented, and Christopher Klein did a great job of showing that in the book that he has. Strong Boy, The Life and Times of John L. Sullivan, America's first super or sports superstar, so definitely worthy of checking out with that. I think I'm going to be out of here. Be sure to check out 86boxing.com. Follow us on social media, twitter.com. We're at 86boxing on Twitter. Facebook at 86boxing or just search for 86boxing. Instagram at 86boxing. Pretty much anything at 86boxing. Hit up the website. I'll get with you. Hi, how can I help you today? As a McDonald's employee, you say those words quite often. But how about when you need help, like consulting a doctor? Hi, how can I help you today? When you work for a McDonald's restaurant, we take care of you like family. With free virtual doctor's visits, including getting prescriptions and refills for you and everyone in your family. Apply today at careers.mcdonalds.com and find out more. The benefits described herein are only available at participating restaurants. The future will be amazing, and that's all well and good. But what about today? You can feel the rush of a 400-horsepower Nissan Z. Or climb to new heights in the all-terrain Nissan Frontier. Light up the road in the all-electric Nissan Aria that feels like a sci-fi dream come true. 
The future will be great, but today is made for thrill. All you have to do is get in a Nissan and drive. 2023 Aria and Z not yet available for purchase. Expected availability is this spring for 2023 Z and this fall for 2023 Aria.